This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, where can I find God? Now we're asking at today's big question to Professor John Lennox. John is Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University and is an internationally renowned author and speaker on the interface of science, philosophy and religion. He's also debated some of the world's best known atheists such as Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens and Peter Singer. And he joins me now, John. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you very much. I am delighted to be in Australia again, even though it's only in virtual reality. (laughs) Today is a milestone event because this is our 200th episode. Uh, So thanks very much, John, for being a part of our 200th episode. Well, congratulations. That's quite a milestone and I'm (laughs) greatly honoured to be part of it. That's great. Well, there's lots of big questions in the world and that's why we've got to 200 of them. Um, But now, John, You've asked a few big questions in your time and you've engaged some as you've debated some well-known atheists, um, Peter Singer, the late Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins twice. And one of those debates was actually in front of a Tyrannosaurus Rex dinosaur in Oxford. Now, when you did that, did that fill you with any concern? Debating Richard Dawkins is a pretty formidable call. And, of course, it's pretty terrifying. I wasn't terrified of Tyrannosaurus Rex, or threatening it looks on the film. But, you know, when you're defending Christianity from an intellectual perspective, you know that people are going to be judging uh, the quality of the Christian faith by what you say. And that means you've got to work very hard to be fair to your opponent, particularly And that particular debate turned out to be fairly feisty. Mm -hmm. So it was an exhausting experience. It certainly wasn't exhilarating. Right. Okay. Well, John, one of the things that you've become in recent times is a bit of a movie star because you've actually appeared in a film released at the end of 2020 called Against the Tide, Finding God in an Age of Science. Now, you appeared in this film with... Hollywood actor, producer, and director Kevin Sorbo. Um, now, you actually both played yourselves in this film, but what was the rationale then of having uh, you with uh, a guy who'd played Hercules in the TV? Well, the backstory to it is this that Kevin is very well known through Hercules and Andromeda and various other films, but he was the atheist teacher in a film called God's Not Dead. And In that film, right at the very beginning, he's challenged by a Christian student. And the Christian student used my arguments. It was quite a surprise to me to find that when I first saw the film. And the way in which our film was generated was a very natural way that Kevin has now finished filming. But he begins to wonder, who is this person that challenges the likes of Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking? And the idea of the film is he comes to Oxford to find out and to talk to me about what lies behind me, presumably having a comfortable professorship. Why do I dare step outside into the lion's den, so to speak, and take on the atheists of the world? And the film falls into two parts, and the difference between them is quite important. The first part is Kevin and I discussing in Oxford 
various big questions about the existence of God against the background of the natural sciences. But it comes to a point where he raises the question that thinking people do raise. This is all very well. Suppose we see evidence of God in creation in the universe and in physics and chemistry and in science. But you're a Christian, which mm. is, of course, true. How do you take the additional step from having faith in a creator and believing in the Christian faith with all its historic dimensionality as well as its experiential dimensionality? So he asked me this question in the film, and I said to him, Kevin, well, one way of answering this would be to go to where it all started. Why don't mm -hmm. we meet for dinner in Galilee? And the film sure. moved to dinner in Galilee. And we discussed the historical Christian faith, the evidence for it in Jerusalem, Galilee, the whole question of the resurrection, the crucifixion, and so on. So it's a two-part film, mm. which is in a way quite unusual. We're not sure that there's any other one quite like it. Right. So do you see that those two then are connected? If you're going in some respects from the philosophical reflections on the existence of God, but then you move to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, th those two are connected in your mind? Oh, very strongly connected, because the, the point is that believing in God is not believing in a philosophy merely, it's believing in God as person. Mm -hmm. And the central claim of the Christian faith is that God has visited this planet and came to a particular place at a particular time and revealed himself as the person of Jesus Christ. So that all is part and parcel of it. And as a scientist believing in God, I've got to factor in the questions that are going to come. For instance, the whole life, death, burial, and particularly resurrection and ascension of Jesus have a very profound and obvious supernatural dimension. Mm -hmm. And that's the question. How can I, as a scientist, believe in such things in the 21st century? So the film gives me a chance to say something about them. Mm. So the film is called Against the Tide. What is the tide? Well, the tide is the tide of secularism, and in particular, the tide in academia of naturalism being regarded as the default worldview. That is, there's no supernatural dimension. This world is all that there is. And all explanations of it have to be in terms of the natural sciences, more or less. So we're dealing with one of the major trends in academia, and that is to espouse scientism. The idea that science is the only way to truth. So I am trying to deal with Kevin with some of the big philosophical questions before we enter the specifics of the Christian faith. Mm. Although the tide of naturalism and atheism is a, it's a pretty strong tide, though, isn't it? So why do you think it's appealing to so many? Well, it fits the spirit of the age. There are all kinds of reasons for this, going back possibly to the French and British Enlightenment, the anti-God feeling. And of course, living in this part of the world, 
no longer in the EU, yes, but the EU's constitution, which runs to about a thousand pages, doesn't even mention the word God. And so there's been a concerted attempt to airbrush God out mm. of our history. And it seems to me that that is a very unwise thing to do, even from a cultural perspective. But I want to restore the balance mm. and argue that Christianity, which has been the major influence, not simply in the religious level, but in society at the cultural level and moral level, it was interesting watching Jordan Peterson not long ago in one of his very interesting talks on Genesis, and he came across the statement that human beings are created in the image of God. And he paused to say, look, he said, this is the foundation of values, of civilized values, and we ignore it at our peril. And I think he's exactly right that the world, particularly the Western world, owes to the Judeo-Christian legacy its legal system, its human rights, its universities, mm. its hospitals. There's a huge legacy mm. there that that gets forgotten, in fact, gets repressed. And because the tide is running so strongly in the opposite direction, I want to swim against it. And of course, you know that Dead fish go with the tide, right. and living fish can swim against it. Mm. Now, John, the movie claims to be finding God in the age of science, and that's what today's big question is about, where do I find God? Where do you begin with a big question like that? Where do you start to find uh, God? It depends entirely on the questioner. What I mean by that is some people, especially if they're scientifically trained, their interest is in the intellectual side. Where do we see evidence for God? And I want to start at that level by saying the first bit of evidence is the fact that science can be done. Mm -hmm. I often refer people in this context to the sheer historical facts that modern science is a legacy of Christianity. C.S. Lewis put it beautifully when he said, uh, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. And if you look back and start with Galileo and Kepler, Newton, Clark Maxwell, Faraday, all of these people believed in God. Many of them were Christian believers. So I say, you know, I'm not ashamed of being a believer in God and a scientist, because arguably it was Christianity that gave me my subject. Mm. So there's the first reason why it's not so ridiculous to believe in God. The second is that these people, because they believed in a creator, felt that science was worth doing because you were thinking God's thoughts after him. Now that argument has moved right into the center because there's a deeper way of looking at it. You see, I meet constantly, Rob, among my colleagues, but others, the idea that I'm a man of faith, which means I believe where there's no evidence. Mm. Well, that's blind faith, and that is dangerous. No, I'm a person of faith in God because I believe there's evidence, and they are people of faith in their atheism and naturalism. Everybody is a person of faith. Uh, we need to get that absolutely straight. So 
the logical question is, what is the evidence on which your faith, whether it's atheism, theism, pantheism, or whatever, what's the evidence on which it is based? And to my atheist friends, and that's where most of the pressure comes from, I say, look, you're a scientist. What do you do science with? You do it with your mind, and if you don't believe in the mind, you believe in the brain. Tell me about your brain. And generally speaking, the story of the brain, a brief history of the brain, like, is that it's the end product of a mindless, unguided process. And, you know, it's been very interesting over life meeting leading scientists and saying to them, now look, suppose you knew that the computer you use every day was the end product of a mindless, unguided process. Would you trust it? And I have always, without exception, got the answer, no, I wouldn't. And then I just smiled. I say, you've got a problem. You're telling me that you're doing science with an apparatus. <laughs> That's the end product of a mindless, unguided process. But you're being totally inconsistent. Now, I'm doing science with something that I believe is a God-created thing. And that is what gives its, its legitimacy. So what I'm challenging is this. I'm saying that atheism and science are incompatible. Mm. That's a controversial thing to say. Oh, very controversial, but it gets the point across. You see, they think that science and God are incompatible. I'm saying that science and atheism <laughs> are incompatible and science and God fit very well together as the perceptive soul. Mm. Well, perhaps another area where you perhaps are controversial is over the notion of evidence, because atheists often claim that there is no evidence for God, yet you claim that there is, and that's where the evidence points to. So how do we adjudicate this? Well, there are evidence of different kinds. It, the difficulty is not that there's no evidence, but getting people to think about it seriously. The evidence for the pioneers of science was, first of all, in seeing the universe and seeing that it was ordered. Mm. That idea of an ordered universe going beyond that, that it's mathematically describable. This is amazing. What explains that? Einstein and Wigner, who both won the Nobel Prize, could see that there was a problem. Einstein said, the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Mm. And I take that uh, very seriously. That's my first line of evidence, is the fact that we can understand the universe rationally points to a rational mind behind it. Now, you can pursue that at various levels, but there's a second dimension. You remember the film's in two parts, and the second has to do with Christianity, which deals with not the natural sciences, but something equally rational, the his history and experience. See, one of the big problems with scientism is that it gives people the impression that science and rational thought are coextensive, which is nonsense, of course. History is a rational discipline, and so is linguistics, and so is literature, and so on. They're all rational disciplines, but they're not the natural sciences. And... When people say to me, but okay, I can see perhaps the beginnings of some kind of evidence at the scientific and philosophical level, but science is based on testing things. Mm. 
you can't test Christianity. And I say, pardon? I say, I wouldn't be a Christian if you couldn't test it. They're very curious. How can Mm. you test Christianity? And I said, very easily. Jesus made certain claims. And this brings me to the heart of Christianity, of course, immediately. He made certain claims. He claimed that he was God incarnate and that he'd come to actually do something about the great gap uh, that is between humans and God because they have rebelled against God. Now, he says that if we trust him and turn away from our sin and trust him for salvation, Mm. Jesus says that if we do that and trust him as Lord and follow him, then certain things will happen. One is we will receive forgiveness. And I usually pause there and I say, do you think you need forgiveness? And often people are in such a personal mess. They love to have forgiveness. Mm. You will receive peace. Do you like peace? Well, many people like peace. You will receive a new power for living. I say, for instance, if you see a person who's addicted to narcotics or alcohol and hasn't got enough to eat because they're spending it all on uh, drink, and you meet them six months later and they're have got food, they've got a job, their relationships are restored, and you say to them, what has happened to you? And they say, well, actually, and they may put it different ways. They may say, I became a believer in Jesus. I became a Christian. I got born again. But the point is, when you see that, as I have done again and again in my life, people transformed. Mm. That is powerful evidence that you can add two and two and get four. Mm. And it is enormously important. One lovely evidence of it was at Harvard, where I gave a lecture and I finished and uh, a Chinese student in the gallery stood up and shouted there over a thousand people there look at me and of course we did and I said why should we look at you he said just look at me and he was beaming he said six months ago I heard you lecture Penn State University said I was in a mess and he described various details of his despair and could see no way out And he said, I started on a search that day and eventually I became a Christian. Just look at me. And it was one of the most powerful testimonies because Mm. it was utterly obvious that the man had been totally transformed and the other students could see this is something attractive. This Mm. transforms life. So I would want to say the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And of course, it's one of my main reasons uh, for trusting Christ is the difference that he has made in my life and my family life over 52 years of marriage. Mm. People say to me, there's no evidence. I say, what did you make of the historical uh, studies of Jesus when you read them? Well, they've never heard of them. And I say, well, now look, until you read this you can't say there's no evidence if you if you if you're not even prepared to look at it well john the bible itself speaks to this question uh, with the gospel of john making the claim about jesus in john 1 9 which says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world so what is the light in this particular passage well light 
is a fundamental biblical concept and it has many le levels. And there is physical light, of course. And if we've got receptors, which we most of us have eyes to see, we can see what light shines on. But of course, light has a metaphorical sense. Who will give us light on life is really what you're talking about. And the interesting thing is that it's the life of Jesus that is the light, and he claimed to be the light of the world. But very interestingly, he put it in this way. He said, those that follow me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In other words, this is a light that will illuminate our path, provided we follow it. And the picture is very interesting. You see, if a light is moving, so long as I keep up with it, I'll be able to see. But if I stop and it moves on, I'll end up in the dark. And that's exactly what's going on here, that Jesus is the light of the world. He reveals God to us, but he is a moving light. And he invites us to be intellectually honest and morally open and to take steps of following him and we will have the light of life. Mm. It's been a very important metaphor for me. You see, there's a famous story also in John's Gospel where Jesus announces that he's going back up to Judea when it's very dangerous because a friend of his called Lazarus is ill. And when he says, let's go to Judea, the disciples say, you're crazy. They're seeking to kill you up there, and this is suicide. And he makes a fascinating statement to them. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If a man walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if he walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, that is fascinating because we know that some creatures are bioluminescent, but not all. And we don't have lights built in. How often I wish I did when I stumbled <laughs> out of bed. In the middle and of the night. <laughs> being an amateur astronomer, I do have a light that I put up on my head. But the point is this, that our world... The solar system is a gigantic object lesson. What Jesus was saying to the disciples was this, look, chaps, you know that you walk in the day because you don't have a light in yourself. You are utterly and helplessly dependent for a light that's out, not only outside of you, but outside of your world. Now, <laughs> this raises the question, where do I get light on life? Do I look in to my mind and my thoughts, which most of us do, or is there a light that's outside me and my world? Now, this gives us the measure of Jesus' claims, and it actually is that deep ring of truth with me. He's claiming to be a light that's outside of me that can illuminate my path if I, if I follow him. And speaking honestly, I know I don't have the solution to life's biggest questions. It's not in me. So Jesus says, look at the solar system. You are helplessly dependent for your light, for your energy, for your life on a source of energy and illumination that is 
<laughs> over 90 million miles outside your world. You can do nothing about it. Mm. And it's rationed because the earth rotates, you see. Mm. So if you want to stay in the light, you've got to keep up with it. So this idea of uh, Jesus being light, then how is that then connected with this quest to find God? Well, I think it's connected that he is standing in front of us and saying that he's prepared to illuminate these big questions. And John's gospel is perhaps the best place to start. You've hit it right on there because at the end of the book he explains to us what he's doing and he says many of the signs jesus did in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written that you might believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that believing you might have life in his name now this is hugely important Jesus did many things. John calls them signs. That is, they are pointers. They are illuminating something deeper than himself. And he says, I've chosen these and put them in a book that you might believe. In other words, this is evidence. If Christianity wasn't evidence-based, that book could not have been written because it claims to be evidence. And as you go through that gospel, you will find Jesus illuminating various aspects of life for his disciples and for other people so that they can gradually begin to realize who he is. They're pointers to the fact that he is actually God incarnate and therefore building up reasons for trusting him. Mm. So, John, where can I find God? It's not a geographical question, but God is, as Scripture assures us, much nearer than we think. And what it requires is openness and response. And what I often say to people that ask me that question is, you've got to start somewhere. And if you start by saying God can't possibly exist, you never rise above that. You've got to be open to the possibility that he does. But ask your questions. Don't repress your questions. And start, if you haven't done it before, start to read, say, the Gospel of John. Get a copy of it in a reasonably updated English version so that it makes sense. And ask your questions as you read and note them down. But don't only do that. Open yourself up to the possibility that if there's a God, he wants to communicate with you. But, you know, I've watched at the age of 77, many people start, ask their questions, and gradually, step by step, the evidence builds up. God is a God who will give you evidence if you are prepared to follow where it leads. Let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to this big question, where can I find God, from John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today for our 200th episode, Professor John Lennox. Bye-bye and thank you. Hi everyone, Rob Martin here, host of Bigger Questions. Um, thanks for listening to the show and I'm delighted that we've reached the 200th episode. So thanks for listening and being a part of our journey. Now creating great content isn't easy or free 
And Bigger Questions is funded by donations from those who love the show. So if you've benefited or enjoyed exploring the bigger questions of life with us, maybe you could consider a special contribution to Bigger Questions before the end of the financial year. We're trying to raise some extra support to help us spend more time creating shows and interviewing great guests rather than raising financial support to keep us funded. So if you'd like to consider perhaps a special end-of-year financial bonus for Bigger Questions, then please click the link in the show notes and make the purpose Bigger Questions. Or perhaps if you'd like to invest in bigger thinking on an ongoing way, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. For as little as US $1 per podcast, you can help us create better dialogue around the bigger questions of life. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions for all the details, and the link is also in the show notes. Now, we're very grateful for all of our Patreon supporters, as we currently have, so thanks to you all. So also, please go and like Bigger Questions on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please share this show with someone you think would benefit from it, and let's get more people exploring the big questions of life. So thanks again for being part of our 200th episode, and may we continue to keep asking the bigger questions.